he's introduced you to great coffee. Congratulations! World's best cup of coffee. Great music. Good win in a wrestling match. Lemmy or God? Lemmy. Ah, God. Wrong, Dick. Trick question. Lemmy is God. Great travel. That's the dream. It's not the destination. It's the journey. All things to enrich your life. If you're good at what you do, people will recognize that. Now, he's ready to tackle itself. Whoop-de-doo! What does it all mean? With some great guests with even better life stories. Yes, even better than how he almost failed grades 2, 4, and 7. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. You're listening to the Brenton on Tour Lifecast. Here's BD. All right, before we get rolling here with Paul... It's time to send my Apple Podcast listeners over to Apple Podcasts. Leave a review. Tell me what you think. Good, bad, ugly, all of it. I don't get you to do it much, but let's do it. We had a real great week last week uh, with uh, Ted from Partake Brewing, one of our sponsors. The week before that with Bill, uh, who was out with Terry Fox. Uh, the week before that with Claire Pooley, who wrote The Sober Diaries. It's just on a roll, and it's going to keep going. I've got some big guests, including this week with Paul. So let's keep it the momentum going. Partake's going to sort you out with a brand new prize pack from them for supporting the cause. So lots of good stuff ahead. Partakebrewing.ca, they sponsor us thanks to them. Now, Paul Merks, staple of the Canadian music industry for many, many years. Worked with Bowie, worked with Pearl Jam, Hart, Fleetwood Mac, Brian Wilson, you name it. Some of the biggest names in music. One of my mentors who's put me on some of the biggest shows I've ever done, including one of my favorites, Pearl Jam, and their team, uh, which has led to just a countless amount of memories for me. He's a mentor of mine. He's in a beautiful part of the world called Lund, B.C., He's on sabbatical like the rest of us in the music industry, but I couldn't wait to hear his take on where he thinks the music industry is going, how to maintain relationships in this time as far as agents and managers and what that's been like for him and coming through the ranks and some of the first shows that he did. Man, do you know that he did the first show after Elvis and the Beatles in Vancouver at Empire Stadium? I mean, it's a hell of a story. So tune in. Here we go. Uh, it's my LifeCast episode four with Paul Merks, uh, one of the staples of the Canadian music industry, a great friend and uh, all around inspirational dude. So here we go, friends. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Brenton on Tour LifeCast. Joined very, uh, joined this week by my very special guest, Mr. Paul Merks, all the way from Lund, British Columbia. How are you doing, sir? I'm great today. Thanks. Awesome, Paul. One of my one of my mentors and one of the guys who's uh, uh, a huge uh, influence on my life and my music career so far. Sending me out with the likes of Heart and Pearl Jam, uh, amongst others. Really, one of my most favorite uh, uh, people in this business. And uh, just wanted to get you on the life cast to kind of talk about the life of Paul Merks and how things have been going for you uh, with the change in music and the change of the promoting and just life on the island now. So. You got a fancy new beard I haven't seen yet. So this is quite a this is quite a quite a thing for me here today. How are you today over there? We're good up here. Uh, I'm actually not on the island. I'm on the mainland. Um, it feels like, like an island. If you drive here, it takes uh, two ferries to right. get to, to Lund. Um, if you fly, it's 25 minutes from Vancouver. But um, yeah, no, it's great up here. I'm uh, I'm sitting up on my farm and um, yeah, loving it. 
When we first met, you were downtown Vancouver. Uh, uh, we'll get to the kind of nuts and bolts of it, but let's go to the move to Lund. How, you know, what, where was the, where did that come from? Where did you decide to kind of take it to Lund? Because uh, I, it's the first time I'd ever heard of it was Lund, and then you've been raving about it and posting about it, and it seems like an amazing spot of the world. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you got to go back to uh, where I grew up as a kid to really get to the roots of it. I grew up on a farm in Revelstoke, British Columbia, which is a small town, you know, halfway to Alberta from Vancouver. And uh, so I lived on a, about a 120 acre farm when I was a kid um, near the Columbia River. And uh, so my days were spent, you know, just in the forest, me and the bears and the creek and the fish and whatnot. And uh, I think, um, you know, after spending as much time as I have traveling and, you know, being really, really busy and, and living in cities and all that kind of thing. There were probably over the last uh, seven or eight, eight, nine years, I just was really uh, felt an urge to get back to somewhere like this. So um, I found this area. I love the stories about Lund. Um, Grant Lawrence uh, on CBC has got some great podcasts. Right. about the area because he spent a lot of time up here in Desolation Sound. And I think it was one of Grant's books that actually uh, brought me here. I read it and I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds like an interesting place to check out. So I came out here, checked it out and found this property and um, yeah, couldn't be happier. Uh, do you find it easier to work out there? I mean, uh, especially given our new society of uh, not having offices or anything, it's basically you're out in the, out in the, out in the wilderness and you're finding it's a better fit. For that it's it's really nice um it's good because uh you know i could still do all the work i i need to do in the music business to book shows and uh you know i'm I have been pretty busy until the covid thing hit and then it's been a you know it's just been a matter of rescheduling 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 but um no i can work out of here great um we're on satellite internet but i found a new uh, supplier and it's working good and uh i have a great office in my house here and um so what I really like is, you know, if I'm not, um, you know, if I'm not, you know, working on deal sheets or talking to agents or whatever, I can go outside and work in my veggie garden or take my dogs out for a walk up in the hills and do that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a great, you know, it's just a great balance that way. We met a few years ago. I was given an opportunity. Uh, you were looking, I think, for somebody to go out on Emerson Drive or something. And I ended up, I think that was the first time we had a chance to work together uh, across this uh, fine country of ours. Maybe one or two things before that. And, um, you know, it formed a great, uh, to me, a great mentorship. I, I learned a lot from doing shows uh, with you, sp uh, particularly fascinated with your history. Um, Canada, Seattle, uh, with you know, uh, Pearl Jam's management, Hearts management, just all kind of everything is all seems to be intertwining. From a guy from Ontario, we heard wonders of this this space. We heard wonders of the Seattle scene. We heard wonders of British Columbia and sort of everything kind of connecting between the two. And um, your story to me seems like it's the ultimate connection between the two the two sides. Um, because you're here, you've, you know, you've had Pearl Jam and Heart, and we'll get into that that for our listeners as far as to make them understand how relationships work with artists. But where, what's the first thing in Paul Merck's brain that says music industry? Commodore ballroom. The Commodore ballroom. Yeah. Famous ballroom, uh, Western Canada. Uh, look it up. It's, it's too long of a list at this point to get into on the podcast, but 
Uh, the great Aaron Chapman wrote a book about it. Uh, you can find uh, online uh, the Commodore Ballroom. You went to see a show or you wanted to be a booker or what was it that that was sort of like this well, is what I'm going to do for a living right here. Yeah. Well, I was young. Hey, um, the first job I actually had was uh, in England uh, in 1970 at, um, at something called the Bath Blues Festival. And I, I went there and got a job helping set the site up and, uh, you know, didn't know anything from anything. And uh, except I love music and I love shows. And, you know, I met the promoter there and um, and it was a show with, you know, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and a lot of American acts, you know, Santana and uh, Jefferson Airplane and stuff. And, you know, setting up the show, uh, I found a perch on stage left on a road case for the show. And um, I didn't leave. Mm -hmm. I just sat there for the whole show. And, uh, you know, no more than uh, I remember opening my eyes at one point in time when Les Zeppelin was on and seeing uh, Jimmy Page not more than three feet in front of me looking at me playing a solo, right, with 300,000 people out in the audience. And, you know, you have that kind of experience and it kind of draws you to the business, I think. And uh, so I went back to Canada and uh, just through sheer... Uh, um, in a kind of fluke of circumstance, met a guy that wanted to do a show and we talked about it. And, uh, so in 1972 or yeah, 72, I walked up the stairs of the Commodore ballroom and, you know, the stairs of the Commodore ballroom are an institution in themselves. And, um, and, uh, I met with like, Drew Burns and some of his partners and, uh, I said to them, Hey, I want to do a show. And, um, I really didn't know much about anything. And, um, and they said, sure. So, the, you know, we booked a show on 11 days notice. We booked Captain Beefheart, who, if you don't know who he is, check him out. He's like just unbelievable. He had played with uh, Frank Zappa and uh, he had a great record out. And so we booked him on 11 days notice and sold out two Commodore ballrooms on 11 days. And um, and that was the uh, my first experience. So really a lot of what music is for me goes back to that time in the Commodore. I like how you had said that, you know, you'd called about doing a show, but you'd never done a show before. And Drew just let you kind of do it. So the process now for a lot of these places is obviously it's either run by Live Nation or it's run by a competitor or, you know, they, they hold it pretty tight. Someone rarely, they rarely maybe rent it out to it outside of a corporate gig or two, but for someone else to come in and do concerts, I guess back then it was a bit more common because they had to fill the calendar what was that? I mean, that moment of like, yeah, just go ahead. I'll teach you how to run a concert. Or they just basically gave you the room. How did they you? Have to me, yeah. They just gave me the room. You know, they had yeah. done very few shows of the modern era. I think right. in Aaron's book, he refers to that show I did there as kind of the first show of the modern era of concerts in the Commodore ballroom. Right. So, uh, you know, Drew had, um, been using it for union meetings and, you know, uh, the fifth day club, which was, the singles kind of thing in Vancouver at the time. It wasn't an active concert venue at the time. It was very, very rare that there was a show. I think I had seen Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels in there, and that was pretty awesome. I think I saw BTO and ZZ Top in there, hence the beard. And, right. um, and uh, there had been a couple things. So when I went in there with Captain B, B Fart, that was really the first of what became the concert 
Commodore Air, I think. And uh, yeah, he just said, go ahead and do a show. And we had to figure out how to do it. And I'm still not sure how we did it. I don't know to this day if we made money or not. I don't have a clue. You know? so, <laughs> I, uh, I, I remember talking to uh, an agent at Feldman when I first started going, I, I want to do a show. I've never done a show. And the agent had to, had to actually walk me through how to do a show. Well, you got to do this and you got to do that. And I'm sure at the time there was a little bit more info in there than I needed to, you know, for the artists, <laughs> you know, take, you got to take care of them like this or whatever. But yeah. I just, I just, I think it was Sam, Sam Tuma was my first agent at Feldman in Toronto. And, uh, I just remember it being him and Jeff Crape and those guys were, uh, this is how you do a show. And they walked it through and then you just do the next one and then you do the next one and away you go. And it was kind of, kind of fun. So, um, was it a common thing then? Did you kind of do a whole bunch from that point? Like that was fun. Or did it kind of have to ramp up? You slowly had to build yourself up into becoming like a local promoter. Is that the idea? Yeah, it took a while. Yeah, I think that was in 1973. And uh, that was like 47 years ago that I did that first show. And, uh, you know, so we, um, you know, we slowly started trying to reach out to agents and, um, and uh, you know, get the next show, right? And um, I remember flying down to a lot. Los Angeles and, uh, you know, cold calling agents, you know, I think the first agent that took a meeting with me is uh, Dan Weiner, who's, um, was, I think it was, uh, IFA or something like that at the time. And he's, you know, I think still with, uh, he's with paradigm as far as I know still today. And, uh, I spoke to him not too long ago and, uh, you know, he took the first meeting and he asked me, uh, you know, how many shows they did a year. And I probably said three and he kind of, you know, rolled his eyes and, uh, you know, so, you know, just bit by bit, you know, we, uh, we started booking shows and then we started going into, um, started going into the civic theaters who hated us at the time. Right. Cause we put the first rock shows into the, into the Queenie and, um, the Orpheum was still a movie house, uh, oh. at that time. Um, so, um, yeah, we started, uh, doing, uh, you know, the odd, uh, show and just slowly, slowly, slowly building up our volume over probably like three years, something like that into 76, 77, which is, you know, when I then went to uh, Seattle and I mean, started moving out of there. There's, there's the, the, what's the greatest era of music conversations, but <laughs> what's the greatest era to become a promoter? Would you say that, like, I mean, no one's going to learn how you guys learned. Yeah. Coming from there, flying down to meet agents and trying to find artists and trying to develop relationships. Like to me, I mean, how much money are you investing just to get the artists? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there weren't, um, you know, Vancouver didn't have, well, it had a few guys in front of me that were promoters and did a few shows. And then uh, shortly after I got kind of rolling, Periscope came along, which, you know, part of that whole chain now of Norman Perry and Riley O'Connor and all those guys. But, um, it, it was a pretty amazing uh, uh, time because there was so much music breaking all the time. You know, there was a time when, when, you know, Heart was breaking and Foreigner was breaking and, you know, whomever, Rush and Sticks and all these uh, rock bands of that era. You know, every year there was a uh, Super Tramp. There was a new band that, um, you know, was an arena act instantly or like within minutes, it seemed. And uh, so... It was a great time if you got yourself positioned, um, you know, properly. You know, there was a lot of business that was coming down the pike in those days. You know, just act after act after act became arena acts and in those early 70s times. And then people had to, you know, find the, the promoter. 
<laughs> did, the yeah. post, did the Polestar book even exist then? I don't, right? No, <laughs> right. no there were no fax machines in those Yeah, days. yeah. Amazing. So, I'm, a, I'm amazed at how, how everything got done back then. It just, yeah, it was, it was a really a wonderful time because, um, you know, we would, you know, like I did the first uh, Def Leppard tour of Western Canada. And, uh, you know, so, you know, you talk to the agent and you, with a pencil, you would write into a sheet that had the list of expenses on it, mimeographed. It wasn't even photocopied years then. So it had a list of... Uh, might be and you hand wrote in what you expected them to be and then you would mail them or courier them to new york uh or la to the agent and um and you would spend hours on the phone with a booking agent um going over every line item like every line item uh you on every show in every city so you would talk about you know your catering you've got three thousand dollars for catering in Vancouver like how did you come up with that number what do you think I, and every line item you would talk about and um, way different than now right and um, it was also a great opportunity to build relationships with agents because you were on the phone with them for so long right and, uh, and I think I did a really great job with that I mean by the time uh, when, when I first went to Seattle you know, I went to work with a company down there and we were like definitely at the bottom of the heap in terms of promoters. But, you know, by the time I left, we were the dominant promoter in the Northwest and I was probably doing 300 shows a year and um, all over, um, all over uh, the Northwest and into the Southwest into Phoenix and Tucson and Albuquerque and into Alaska and to Anchorage and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was just a great time because there's so many great acts coming down the, the pike all the time and you could build that relationship with the agents. Were you primarily West coast? Yeah. In Canada, I would, uh, yeah, I was West coast in Canada. Yeah. I would do, uh, you know, eventually got as far as Winnipeg in those early days. Um, yeah. And then eventually, you know, afterwards became a national promoter here. But uh, yeah, a lot of Vancouver, Seattle, Portland and Spokane and Yakima and, uh, and then down into uh, not really California, because, again, there was a dominant promoter there and Bill Graham. But, you know, places like Phoenix and Tucson and Albuquerque, I would do Supertramp and other acts through those markets. So the uh, I'm I'm fascinated with your Seattle connection here as far as being able to go across work because you st- you had a, a couple you've had a few roles over the years obviously promoter is one a few roles over the year yeah. uh, promoter being uh, I guess most prominent but um, how does the Seattle thing come about like that leads to these great relationships as far as um, heart goes or Pearl Jam or anything like that management. I know you, I think you got some publicity you did as a start as a, you did some like a publicist work too, I believe that I read yeah, about I that. Some, so, some publicity work for some, yeah. uh, some types of shows. Well, there was an, uh, an indie promoter kind of at my level in Seattle. Um, and the company was Albatross productions and uh, we were doing sort of the same types of shows. He, he in Seattle and me in Vancouver. And um, we partnered, uh, uh, partnered at Donovan, uh, some Donovan dates. I think he brought them in and uh, we partnered those in uh, Vancouver, Edmonton and Calgary. And uh, so we started developing a relationship and he, um, he became Hart's first, you know, uh, real manager at that time when uh, Dreamboat Annie came out. And uh, so because he, he, 
he got that gig and got that going. You know, we talked and uh, he asked if uh, I would want to come down there and sort of take over the promoting side of uh, his business and my business and grow it. And he would manage art. And um, and so that's where that really started was because uh, this guy, uh, you know, became Hart's first manager. So, you know, we we uh, you know, I was around them at at the very uh, beginning of their careers when they, you know, when they broke. Right. And, uh, you know, became an arena act and, um, it was pretty exciting. And I had some roles to do within heart as, uh, in addition to promoting some of their, uh, shows, but we, uh, I think in, you know, by 1978 or something like that, you know, we did heart at empire stadium in Vancouver, which was the, uh, football stadium at the P and E at the time. And there had not been a show there since um, the Beatles. There had been two shows there, Elvis Presley, the Beatles. And uh, we did Heart there and, um, you know, sold it out kind of instantly, 40,000 tickets. And um, wow. and after that, I did a number of shows at, at that venue. I did two Super Tramps and 75,000 people and, you know, a bunch of different bands. And uh, But, yeah, that's... Uh, that's where the Seattle connection came. It was through a promoter down there that I uh, went to work with and he managed heart. And then, um, yeah, that's kind of where it started. What's a ticket price at empire stadium for heart? <laughs> you know, I don't know for sure. I, somebody asked me that the other day and, uh, I think it was probably around 10 bucks or something like that. You know, amazing. 10 or 12 dollars, maybe. Yeah. And then that, that crazy to me. Cause then it filters down to all the costs. Well, what did catering costs and what it was, <laughs> a, what was a PA and what was like, like, like how much was yeah. rent? Like, not you know, as, just the, the not promoter. As much as now. <laughs> no, not as much <laughs> as now at all. Um, but I'll tell you, bringing you through that that kind of uh, break of an act w- w- would be something to behold. And you had an opportunity to do it on several occasions. I mean, geez. Yeah, that was, you know, they, they were and are still like, I mean, they are just a fabulous live band. And uh, they were then and they are now. And, um, you know, so... Yeah, that's where, you know, I go back to being a fan and being at, mm-hmm. at, a, at a show in in uh, England with um, Jimmy Page playing a solo four feet from me with 300,000 people and what that felt like, you know, to be able to live your life and to, mm-hmm. you know, to do work with great artists on stage and, um, you know, you couldn't ask for much more, really. No, it's really, and it's the core of it. Do you still get the... the- I mean, I'm only 20 years in myself, but I still, I've never missed the beginning of any show I've ever done. Yeah. Well, it's the best, you know, when uh, the house lights go out and, you know, I usually am standing at stage right on the floor nine times out of 10, uh, no matter what venue I'm in. And, you know, I'm kind of at an angle where my left eye is on the uh, stage and my right eye is on the audience. Right. Mm. And um, that moment when, um, you know, when that connection gets made between the act and the audiences, you know, it's, it's priceless, right? Something, something I practiced, uh, as I was coming through and learning how to be a promoter rep and, and tour with uh, some other artists around the world. And, and as it's kind of grown, but one of the things I did learn, um, well, many things I learned from you, but one of the things that one of the standout things that I learned, uh, you, I remember the first couple of shows we did together, you were like, always make sure you're side stage when the artist comes off and i just remember seeing you always if you're at the show like what you know, most of the shows you could make but if i'm in regina or something you know maybe you're not there but but uh it was always like listen 
the, 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 I don't want to say old school mentality just the to me, the relationship side of the business with the artist is like, if you're representing Paul Merck's, you you know, I want you there when they go on stage and I want you there when they go off stage, which is something that I've carried with me ever since that, that time where I'm always, you know, whether I personally, it's harder to have a, a personal relationship with an artist. Now I just, you know, spent a year with Rod Stewart and, you know, never met the guy or saw him once, you know, from that standpoint, but the people, production manager, tour managers, uh, our buddy Sunil, like all guys that, that we, um, at least associate with are seeing me side stage at the beginning and at the, at the end of all the shows. And it's just something I think it's very important that I, I appreciate, you, you know, learning that aspect from you because they always know that you're there at some point. And I've always seen you at the beginning and the, and the end of all of your shows. Did somebody teach you that? Or was that a personal thing for you? Yeah, I think it's just, it, it was personal. No, I honestly didn't have a mentor in this business, right? I mean, I really didn't um, in terms of how to do this. Uh, and uh, so everything I've learned, I, I learned by trying it, right? And it just seemed to me that, you know, when the artist goes on and, and the artist comes off, you know, you want to be there to, to because um, you can sort of tell, uh, you know, what's going on with them, and to a certain degree and what's going on with the show. And, and, you know, you could sort of categorize it as some sort of a PR type of thing. And I think there have been, and I've seen promoters do it. And I think it's like, um, you know, it's, it's like really being there visibly to, um, you know, try to connect and, and it's like it's sort of like a PR thing, but I never thought of it that way. It was, it was more just to be there, to feel what was going on, to know whether there was something that, you know, you could take care of that. It was going well, or it was all going so well. You didn't have to think about it. The artists were happy going up the, the, uh, you know, the lights went off the, uh, the band started, the audience went crazy. That's it. That's you're, you've taken it to that point. And then when the artist comes off, you know, you're there. And in case there's anything that, um, you know, that needs to be talked about or addressed, like with the tour manager or the production manager, like the artists usually by the say, come off as you know, don't stop, you know, they go and uh, the dressing room or out the door, whatever it is, but it's just, it's just sort of being there to, to, to feel what's going on, you know, and, yeah. and to know whether there's anything more you can, uh, you, you can, uh, you can bring to it. And it's funny, like I'm, I have cottages up here that I rent, you know, and I'll bring it back to Lund for a second, but it's the same approach for me here. You know, when somebody checks in, like I'm, I'm there, right. It's like, mm. you know, I'm there and I'm there, you know, a few hours later or the next morning just to make sure that there's nothing that, that that they need that I could get for them, right? And take care of it. It's just that kind of connection, right? I think that's the promoter's job is to, it's all about making it right for the artist, you know, and, and making sure that you've done everything. And if there's something that still needs to be done, you're there to figure it out. They're not looking for you. You're there. Yeah, it was interesting, uh, which I always thought you know i was always there i mean eric uh, hoffman at uh, live nation or ian lowe any of those guys that uh that uh, brought me into that camp when i was kind of coming through were were uh, cut of the same where it's like you know lots of presence around the artists making sure that everything's all right and uh, and um i just thought it was a really great uh a touch 
And uh, it was an interesting thing to see. And I, I saw that. I remember the first Pearl Jam I, I show I did for you, I think it was in Montreal. And you, I guess, you know, I, I, whether you're down there for production meetings or whatever it is, but I remember just kind of being backstage and wa- and when, you know, Eddie Vedder had come in and maybe you hadn't done a Pearl Jam show in a couple of years, but he was just like, hey, Paul, what's up? Can you give you a hug? And just kind of walked through and went to the dressing room. And it was sort of, you know, kids around like kids at the playground (laughs) i haven't seen it in a while how you been like it's been but it was just like that and and that just tells me how important relationships are when it comes to that side of it you know uh in anything in life but in our business in particular i think it's uh, it's very crucial for the artist's uh, well-being and mindset you know which was great so um awesome man this is uh this is really great so uh part of this life cast that i'm doing is uh, is about the life of paul merck so tell me about the life of Paul Merckx right now has it settled down a bit? Obviously, COVID is kind of happening uh, and kind of shut the world down a bit. But just in general, you know what? It, what is the makeup of like the life of Paul through the the crazy years of promoting and all the rest of it? Is this a your new life now? Lund is like the. It's like the. This is the way it's going to be. It's a. This is the way it has to be. It's a nice relaxed uh, approach to life now. Is this a have you met? Yeah, well, yeah. there's there's that for sure. It is more relaxed here, but um, you know, uh, at the risk of sounding very West Coast, uh, which I don't care about, um, uh, a lot of me being here is about being back close to um, to nature and to the earth and to the trees. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I can turn my computer, but. This is sort of what I look at. I don't know if you can see that, Brent, but... Oh, I can see it, yeah. Yeah, so that's sort of my view. I'm sitting outside my office right now on a deck, and um, so I wanted to um, spend this part of my life, because I'm 71 years old, right? I mean, um, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. I hope a long time. But um, I wanted to be in a place where I personally could... Um, uh, just you know live in close relationship to nature and what grows here what lives here be it the bears that walk through my property or the deer or the trees that are around me or whatever and uh and so not only uh for me to live in that kind of a, a style uh or, or or way but for the people that come to my place uh here um, and stay here to, you know, welcome them into that environment because they may not be able to live that way, right, uh, due to whatever's going on in their lives. But, you know, so right now people that are staying here come down into my garden and take the organic vegetables up. I don't charge for them. They're welcome to come and help themselves. And and it's really great with uh, kids, right, because they, most kids have never had that experience, right, and they – Wow, you dig that plant and the potatoes under there. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, uh, uh, or they're eating peas off the vine and stuff like that. So I, I just really wanted my life to be, um, in, you know, going back to where I grew up on a farm and, and in the woods, in the forest, um, to have that be back into my life and to try to live my life as, you know, the personal life that I live, uh, to be as much about that as I can. And still, to be able to go back into the music business and, you know, book shows, find new artists to work with, um, and experience 
It's that moment when the house uh, lights go out. Is this the best time of your life or is there, or has it happened in different sections? Obviously the kids are born. That's a, that's a section. There's like breaking an, ad, an artist. That's a section. There's traveling around the world. That's a section. But have you, have you looked sort of through the whole process right now and go, I th- this might be the best time of my life or this is just a great addition to what's been going on in life. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think of it in terms of best time, you know, um, this is, this is a great time. Um, you know, COVID notwithstanding and, and, and all the other issues that the world is facing notwithstanding. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot, you know, it's a really critical time in for humanity right now, you know, by and large. Right. Um, so it's not all, um, you know, it's not all, uh, you know, perfect by any stretch, but um, it's, I'm just looking at my, one of my ravens is just flying over here. So I have two ravens that live here on the planet. I have to say it. Is that how you guys communicate <laughs> from London? Send the ravens over with notes? Yeah, there's a guy up there. Yeah, they got a nest up here. I, I call them John and Yoko. And, um, and they're pretty phenomenal. Anyway, sorry, I got distracted for a minute. But um, yeah, no, for me per- personally, this is this is a really great time. Uh, um, I have a granddaughter now that lives in Vancouver, and I wish you know I could see her more. And you know, and once COVID things lift a little bit, I'll go back and forth a little bit more. And she was just up here for for you know five days. But you know, my real dream is that this place that I'm creating here will be hers. You know. Um, mm. when she's 60 years old right uh, if she wants to or 70 if she wants to be here she'll have this like it'll be sustainable and um, it'll be a place that grows food and a place that's close to nature so you know there's a sort of a, a purpose behind this in some respects other than just to live my life here but um, yeah it's a really good time it's a really good time in my life the um <laughs> Music industry aside, I think all industries are being affected by what's going on right now, obviously. Um, the recovery for for the music industry, uh, what's going to be key to this? You've seen swings, I'm sure, but have you ever seen it like this before, ever? No, there's never been anything like this. This is, you know, it came so suddenly and so dramatically and so with such huge effect and you know none of us really know what will happen obviously i mean for us to be able to put eighteen thousand people into an arena again um it's going to either be a vaccine or a cure or uh, like a treatment that works and um and i certainly don't know whether we're going to see that i mean people talk about that and talk about it coming and i'm you know really hopeful that we get to be able to do that again i mean those gatherings um, of people to enjoy music are, you know, I think just absolutely essential, you know, mm-hmm. to people's well-being. You know, we, we've done that for so long and uh, um, I've never seen anything like it and I don't think anybody has. And, um, you know, I just pray that we uh, we do find a way through this. And But it's not going to be soon. I mean, maybe it's 2021, maybe it's 2022. I don't know. So in essence, you're getting a break now probably for the first time in your whole career though as well. So are you welcoming that? Or is it driving yeah. you a little batty? No, I'm I'm not antsy about it at all. I mean, uh, uh, I'm enjoying it uh, in in some respects. Um, you know, there's you know concerns about how you're going to deal with it financially over the long haul, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but 
one thing about being an independent concert promoter is your resilience. <laughs> it's, if, there, if there's anything that is a good, uh, you know, training for difficulty, it's doing that for 47 years. The, uh, one of the, it's funny that you mentioned the independent concert promoter side of it, because one of the questions I, I wanted to, to touch on, it's a two-parter. So the first part is, what's the biggest success and whether that's financially, and I don't necessarily necessarily need you to get into that side of it, but the, the proudest part of what you've accomplished so far versus your oops moment. Because yeah. everyone, everyone's got one of each, I'm sure. And I'd love for people to hear what your both sides of yours are. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, I think all the sort of firsts that, that we did or I did um, in the business, and there's a few of them, you know, like I'm proud that I walked up the stairs of the Commodore Ball, Ballroom and, and figured out how to put on a show in, on 11 days notice and it pulled it off and did that and, you know, we opened, um, you know, things like, uh, you know, in Tacoma, Washington, you know, I was the first person in, uh, to the Tacoma dome with, uh, with, um, David Bowie in 1983. And, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of those, you know, things where we did things that hadn't been done before. And, um, you know, doing hard at empire stadium after Elvis and the Beatles, right. Going in yeah. and doing that kind of thing, doing the first sort of contemporary shows in the civic theaters. Um, you know, I did Fleetwood Mac, the, the big version of Fleetwood Mac, you know, uh, I did the first show outside of California at the Queen Elizabeth theater, pay them $5,000 and, uh, with Lindsay and, um, wow. uh, and, um, yeah. And, you know, like rumors hadn't been released yet. It was just coming. And, uh, you know, so things like that, you know, you, you know, you, you sort of go back and look at those things. Um, you know, just something really simple, like, um, and I was just in the Tacoma Dome a year or so ago to see Hart play, and you know, they were just like phenomenal. But um, they changed the concourse setup in the Tacoma Dome, which really pissed me off because uh, they used to have uh, doors around, like uh, at the far end from the stage. There was, you know, you know what concourses are like, mm. and there's there's rooms off the concourses, and there used to be a room back there. And I remember what, during the Bowie show. Uh, opening a door into that sort of one of the dressing room areas back there, and 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 David Bowie was you know like like right there, right? It was just that kind of a moment, and it's not like uh, you know we exchanged uh, you know telephone numbers or anything, but we just had that moment, you know, and you go, oh my god, you know, this is this is pretty cool. This is the first show in this building, and David's here, and he's looking at me, and he's smiling, and you yeah. know that type of thing. So there's, there's a lot of those kind of first things that I'm really, um, I'm really proud of, um, uh, you know, doing, uh, doing all the entertainment for expo at the expo theater where we did, you know, 135 shows or something. And, yeah. uh, and I put a million dollars surplus into the expo budget, a million plus surplus because of the program I put together. And, you know, I'm proud of that stuff. What was I your, that, what, what was your oops? Oh God. Yeah. Every show that, you know, one of my, uh, <laughs> doesn't have to be financially per se, as much as it is like, man, I wish I would have done that one a little different. Yeah. Um, 
You know, you, when you're an indie concert promoter, you're going to lose money on some shows, right? Mm. Uh, uh, it's just it just comes with the territory. Well, for any any, any promoter, right? It's just it is what it is, and um, and I, I've gone back back over my records for the last 20, 25 years. And what I found is that, you know, from, on a, from a financial point of view, um, you know, if you just took, you know, show revenue, show costs, you know, I was always positive. So obviously I knew something about what to book and what not to book, but you're going to have oopses. And, um, you know, one of the, um, you know, one of the biggest losses and I'll, I'll take this into a fact, I won't give you numbers, but it was pretty big. Uh, I did a tour with, uh, Brian Wilson and uh, from the beach boys who, you know, I just love, I still go and look at the documentaries and the making of, uh, you know, some of those records and, um, pet sounds and whatnot. And, um, I walked into a agent's office in, uh, in California in Los Angeles and he played me the intro to pet sounds and said, you know, he's going to come out and do this record. And it's, you know, he's got this great band and, uh, and I just fell, I just fell, I just fell in love and tipped and, you know, ended up yeah. losing, you know, a ton of money. And, um, and uh, I remember, uh, you know, going back and saying, Jesus, you know, I'm going to lose a really a lot of money, guys. I need a break. They're not going to give you a break. Uh, and then, you know, being told, um, I'm going to share something pretty, you know, pretty relevant here. Uh, well, uh, just send me a letter and, and just say you're not going to pay him. This is the age of talking. <laughs> and, and, and I thought about it. And I talked to my wife and I was you know, still married at the time and together at the time. And, and I said, I can't stiff Brian Wilson. I mean, there's, there's right. you know, that's, you just can't do that. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. there's some artists who you could maybe take a hard line on, but, um, you know, but, um, I couldn't do it. So I paid him the full tab and, mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, it, it was a lot of money. And uh, so, you know, that, that's an oops from, that's a, an oops with respect to being in love with an artist and the music. And, you know, I had done enough due diligence that I thought, you know, that I could make it work, but clearly I didn't. You've had Pearl Jam for how long? 25 years? That's yeah, fine. What, what I mean, what I mean by have is you've, yeah, you know, I don't you've done, have. You've done a lot of, have. done a lot of shows with them. Over <laughs> yeah. the, you know, I don't have the, anybody. Yeah. Right? Um, that's but, just uh, not the way the world works. And I'm fortunate enough that they, you know, they still choose to play with me in Canada yeah. and I value that tremendously. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've worked with them since, you know, 95 ish, something like that. And, yeah, um, there's yeah. a lot of a lot of artists that uh, that come through, and I, I I always appreciate it when uh, you know when I talk to promoters who've had an artist for a long time. It just it, it speaks to uh, it speaks to how the promoter works. It speaks to the relationship that we talked about, and I think it's it's important. Uh, let's talk to tell our listeners about uh, Lund and uh, if they want to come out and visit Paul on the farm. Yeah. <laughs> Where can I find you? Yeah, well, um, it's called, uh, my place is called Fin Bay Farm Retreat. And uh, so you can find me, you, know, you can find that on Facebook. And uh, I think there's a website, although I'm, I'm really not, haven't been very active on uh, the social media side of that. I book my stuff through Airbnb. And uh, um, so the, um, the idea here is, uh, 
is uh, so you can find me that way and uh, come and visit me. And I love having people come and visit. And uh, the idea of this place is to, um, you know, to have accommodations, uh, to have uh, retreats here. And um, I'm looking in front of me, Brent, and I have this, you would love this place. It's, um, it's got a lawn that would probably seat about 700 people for a concert with a pond at the back there where the stage will go and two willows that I planted on either side of the stage. And, uh, hopefully by next summer, I was planning to have a concert here this summer, but Mm -hmm. by next summer I'll have a a concert there, uh, several concerts probably on, on my property. And, uh, you know, so it's sort of an active place Uh, and some uh, music camps. That's the other, uh, the other thing I really want to uh, start putting into here next year is to have some music camps here songwriters or um that type of thing and um have it be an active place where people can come and experience what i experience here anything to pass on to our listeners uh, uh, uh maybe a question that you get a lot but um the world has changed in the music industry but the core of the music industry remains the same so passing on to somebody who's uh, thinking about breaking in what would you tell them Oh, well, I wouldn't discourage anybody from uh, trying to break in. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, as you know, and as we all learned, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, you know, find, uh, find, as you've been talking about, Brent, find a relationship either with an act or depending on what you want to do, but um, what side of the business you want to, but, you know, find a relationship with an artist. If you want to be a promoter and start small and, uh, do some shows and, uh, and just pay attention to the details of what you're doing. And, um, you know, you know, just really pay attention to the artist. I mean, it all comes down to the artist, right. And, uh, and, um, you know, just try, you know, try to find some relationship within this business that you can put your skills to. And uh, so if you want to be a concert promoter, it's like somehow find an act that you can do something with and try it on. You know, you never know where it's going to take you. Walk up those stairs to the Commodore. Walk up the stairs and kick the door down. That's how that's that's how I tell everybody. Uh, this has been the life of Paul Merck's so far. And Paul, I appreciate you joining me from the farm in London. No, it's a beautiful place to be. Uh, You're a mentor of mine, and I appreciate all the opportunities you've given me uh, thus far in my career. And uh, we'll keep moving forward to try to make you proud and and, uh, and take some of this stuff that you've taught me along the way to um, keep our business in a positive place. So I appreciate the time and uh, all the the, uh, opportunities you've given me and coming on the podcast. Uh, and joining me on this journey that I'm doing now with this thing. It's been awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Brenda. I'm very, very uh, excited about what you're doing. And, uh, and, um, and, you know, for what you've done and um, if I just might say, you know, for what you've done and, you know, Ron Chamberlain and some of these guys, you know, a lot of guys that, um, you know, worked for me or with me early on, you know, it's just, it's awesome to see the kind of work you guys are doing. You know, I think Canadians are the best concert promoters in the world. As far as I'm concerned, I think it's that, that level of attention, that connection to the artist and um, well done you guys. Thanks buddy. I won't disagree with you on any of that. I do believe the Canadians do best. (laughs) Thanks Paul. Everyone uh, go visit Paul on the farm. Uh, This is the Brenton on tour life cast, the life so far of Paul Merckx. Thanks buddy. 
Yeah, thanks a lot, Brad. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.